Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts here today. And I've got an interview I did with Josh Harris. If you don't know Josh, Josh is a funny guy uh, based out of Atlanta. He uh, teaches comedy classes down there as well, creates music videos, a lot of content, created his own special. We talk about all those things in this episode. And I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode from uh, Patreon Club 52 crew. It's Jeremy Lee. Jeremy, out in the Pacific Northwest, been thinking about you and yours uh, in these times of... uh, all kinds of outrageous demonstrations and smoke and fire and all kinds of crazy things. Hope you're doing well up there and uh, touch base with me. Let me know how things are going. Thanks for supporting the podcast through Patreon. You can do the same thing. Check out schooloflaughs.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. That aligns you with a group called Club 52, where I send you an email every week to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable, and we have quarterly Zoom hangouts, another of which is coming up very soon. So if you're in Club 52, be looking out for a message through Patreon and uh, through the newsletter about when that's going to take place. Again, we got Josh Harris on the phone call today. Uh, great guy. You're going to dig this. Let's get right into it right now with Josh Harris. Well, I've got Josh Harris on the line today, buddy. How's it going? Oh, I'm so blessed. How are you, my good friend? No complaints at all. The weather's starting to chill out a little bit. I'm home for a good stretch, so feeling pretty good about things. You're looking good, man. I wish they could see how incredible you look right now. You're like a rock star. I've got the selfie glow stick in front, highlighting my face and erasing my dark circles. <laughs> the 52-year-old man. <laughs> That's the only way to do it. Well, uh, I've talked about you a little bit uh, on the pre-roll here, but give people a little snapshot of of where you're at, and then I'd love to find out how you kind of got interested in comedy in the first place. Well, my name is Josh Harris. I'm a nationally televised billboard charting comedian. You may have seen me on TV. You may have seen me on stage. You may have seen me on (laughs) eHarmony. I'm just kidding. I've never been on TV. Nice. In all in all seriousness, I am um I yeah, I've done stand up for gosh, it's I think it's over twelve years now. Been doing it for quite a bit. Um I've been on Bill Bellamy's Who's Got Jokes as a semifinalist, was a finalist on NBC Stand Up for Diversity, their nationwide talent search. Um was performing on got a headlining contract performing on cruise ships this past year. Been on uh TBN doing stand up. I've been on uh what else? Hit number three on iTunes with a com- musical comedy album I released. I've had over 11 million views on, online with some of my comedy videos. So I've um, been doing it for a mi- minute and I also teach stand-up comedy classes, which is fun. So trying to follow in your magnificent footsteps. My <laughs> well, what I do like about you, and we've got a lot of things in common, but uh, you've kind of got the creative spirit that is is very on par with your entrepreneurial spirit and your just love of being a creator. And and as a lot of my friends tell me, there's not a lot of people that do both uh, with excellence or, or a lot that have interest in both. A lot of people just want to be creative or they want to be business minded. But it's fun when you have both. And I know the challenges of that, too, when you have both things going in your brain simultaneously. Sometimes, you know, you're not sure if you're devoting enough time to one thing or enough time to the other thing or too much to something. So, you know, there are a lot of things you got going on. Um and we'll get to the classes for sure in a little bit because I know you've got some knowledge for our, our listeners out there and the videos you create. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you have a musical background. So is music first and then comedy came into the picture? How'd that overlap? Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I was a drummer first. I was a drummer before I ever started doing stand-up. Although you could maybe argue that I was a stand-up in a way because I've been to 11 different schools in my life. Uh, because I was networking. No, <laughs> yeah. got into quite a bit of, I was sort of the class clown and I feel like if I had an open mic, maybe that would have turned the tides a touch um, from me trying to get my comedic kicks off in class. But uh, yeah, I was a, sta- I was a drummer in high school, um, studied piano, some in college. And I think I knew though, I mean, I think I knew under, I mean, 
that I wanted to be on stage telling jokes from when I was maybe, I don't know, 14, 15, 16, saw a little snippet of a popular comic on TV. But, you know, it was a pretty daunting task. I mean, I, I often think I wish that, like, I knew of a class around me that I could have kind of jumped into. I feel like it would have been a much more incremental approach and seemed less intimidating. Um, also, I was kind of uh, on and off while well, starting at around 13 or 14 is when addiction started to kick up in my life. So that was a major hindrance and barrier as well. Uh, so with that being said, I was in music first. And then when I was about 22 or one, I got on stage for the first time. I was actually at a stand-up comedy club, actually at the Punchline Comedy Club in Atlanta, Georgia. And my good friend, Jerry Farber, who is a, like a legend in the Southeast, particularly in Atlanta, my dad's friends with him and he said, Josh is interested in stand-up comedy. And so he told me Jerry was going to call me on stage at the show. Well, we get there. I've never done stand-up before and it's packed. I mean, I don't know what capacity is, but I'm going to guess 250 to 280 people there and I've never done stand-up. Now, I had some ideas and some things I'd written out, you know, but I'll just put it to you this way. I've been teaching stand-up since 2011. I would not have let one of my students perform <laughs> with, the, with the lack of preparation that I had at that moment. But uh, I tell my dad, look, go backstage and tell him there's no way I'm debuting as a stand-up here. So my dad goes backstage, comes back, don't worry, I talk to him, it's all good, you're in the clear. Well, halfway into the show, I hear, we've got a special guest tonight. <laughs> Who wants to see young comic Josh Harris? There's nowhere to run. And I tell you, that moment, I feel like God did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I was not in a good place in my life. But I remember um, <laughs> my stepmother, she had, a, I think, a pretty attractive, sweet lady with her. And she grabbed my arm and said, you've got to do it. And I was like, you're right. I've got to do it. <laughs> so I start heading to the stage. And there was something about when I actually stepped on that stage, that the fear dissipated and I can't explain it. I feel like almost walking to the edge of the cliff and taking the leap was like 75% of the battle in terms of at least summiting that anxiety. And I did okay. Like I did decent. I'm sure I walked off stage and thought like I crushed. I did not crush, but I did good enough to like, you know, to think that there's some momentum here. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until I got sober, I think, I don't know, it was a year and a half, two years later, that I actually started working on stand-up with legit consistency. Unfortunately, before then, I was on stage and off stage due to addiction, and it was really a major impediment to any stand-up growth. But when I got sober through 12-step recovery, um, I made a commitment with myself that I'm going to write for an hour a day once a day and videotape myself when I performed. And I didn't know, that was like as far as I knew what to do. I mean, it was just like kind of, um, I guess, trial by fire. And so I started doing that and man, some amazing stuff really happened in that first year. I mean, the first year I, I was actually got so, uh, doing that kind of discipline. I was uh, selected to be on Bill Bellamy's Who's Got Jokes. I was a finalist on NBC Stand Up for Diversity. And I think there was really something about the consistency of writing regularly. I mean, as you know, you teach comics and I bet you find like even a lot of really good professional comics don't write with regularity. And now that I'm more like comfortable in my career, I can just say I'm, I'm more project based than like daily discipline based, which is not necessarily the best thing, but like I'm more like what's in front of me. I'm going to knock everything out in that regard. But like, like, you know, there's a real power to just taking a small step every day is a daily discipline for building a skill. Yeah, I found that to be especially true since March. I've had more time where I can plan things. You know, I've, I've had projects, like you say, where I'm, I'm going to be gone for two weeks doing this or I've got to do this. But when I don't have that, you know, the first thing after breakfast, I go out with coffee on the patio. I got a you know spiral-bound school notebook thing, and I try to fill up one every month. So two or three pages a day usually does it. Yeah, and it's not all comedy gold, you know, and sometimes you look back and you just made a to-do list for the day and that's fine, you know, but I find that at the end of the month, what I do is I leave the first five pages blank in that notebook. I just kind of pass them up and then I start filling it in. And then at the end of the month, 
I'll go back and look through the notebook of stuff that I kind of honed or maybe got on stage or worked out, put that in the front of the notebook so I can see what I generated that month. And that kind of gives me the momentum when I look through the past five months. I'm like, oh, yeah, five pages of material that's good for the stage out of 70. For me, at least, that's a great return on my time. Amen to that. Well, you know, you bring something up, too, which I am a believer in. I don't always stick by it, uh, but I think that there is more power in more. I'm just going to say more focus and clarity to actually writing on a pen and with a pen and pad versus on a computer. It's too easy. Now, I think for final edit, final draft of the routine, yeah, we want it saved on the computer. It's good to have it in writing, make it editable. But like, I'm in that initial like stage when it's in its kind of like embryonic form, right? Um, I think, I think. An uh, incredible way to go is pen and pad because you're not distracted by the pop-ups and uh, a screen, and it's just kind of like you, the 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 paper in your brain. Uh, so I'm curious when you were doing those first gigs that first year, and you're kind of like you say in and out of kind of addiction and headed towards recovery and those things. A lot of autobiographical true stories or some, anything that was too true for the stage, like when you got up there and you told it, and people were like wow, I, I wasn't ready for all that yet, along with the funny stuff. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think in another, there's kind of two sides to that coin. It's a great question. I think the more glaring um, outlier was that I was not a clean comic. And I mean, I was super dirty. So I feel like that was more of the like, whoa, we're, we're not ready for that. I mean, when I went, you know, started to play in the gutter, in fact, I don't know when it was, but now I would say this continued into early recovery, but there was a, a very popular club locally that, that like, man, they didn't want any, I had to like beg for them to even look at me when I had a clean set. Cause they thought I was so blue. And even though they have blue comics all the time, but they were, I mean, it kind of uh, blackballed me from the club and I had to beg the manager to come just watch me to prove to her, this individual that I was not, um, not vulgar anymore. I mean, not vulgar anymore, period. Uh, so that would be probably the more, uh, you know, glaring issue, I would say, in, in early. Now, with, I've been actually even now, I mean, some people still think some of my funniest stuff or the stuff they like the most is about my addiction, you know, and, and, and I guess old war stories. But I try to flip that into a message, and it's a clean presentation, but, uh, you know, at the end of that, I'll, you know, I'll mention like, you know, thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and 12 step recovery. I've been sober over 12 years. And so I feel like it's maybe a little unexpected, but a lot of times it'll get an applause break. I mean, and that's, that's really cool. You know, um, I try, don't try to be condemning or anything like that. I just share what's worked for me. And, uh, I've, I've experimented some back and forth between like, how much of a message do you throw out there? I've gone too long and that just people kind of tune out. And I feel like if it's a, it's, if it's a mainstream type of club, you really only get bite-sized moments to throw that in there. At least I do. I mean, maybe, so I've tried to make it as quick as possible and then, you know, jump to the next thing. Gotcha. And nowadays when you're, uh, developing material. It's not just on stage. You, you put out a lot of great videos, a lot of musical videos, but some without music. Um, tell me about your process for when you get an idea, uh, a little seed of an idea for a song or for a, a skit, kind of what you go through to kind of add the humor to it and, and get the outline for it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I feel like it's very similar to stand up. Now, I'll be honest, I think music's my biggest passion. So I, I love writing and producing music. And I feel like I use comedy as, I mean, I'm kind of like, well, if I'm not going to be in one direction, I'm just going to do like stand up, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, or comedy music that I try to give it like a pop polish that is radio friendly. So I'm, um, I love writing and producing music. So sometimes I think it's kind of like my excuse to just live vicariously and try to make the most polished radio project pop or production possible. But I, you know, I will typically have the idea. So we just did a comedy song called Corona Corona and released it. And it got a lot, I mean, it got a lot of shares on, online and did, did, uh, thought it, I thought it was personally my favorite comedy video I ever produced, even though it didn't have the most views. Like 
I feel like the people that were into it were just the most into it. But what I would do is I, I typically have the idea and I just start writing it kind of like a stand-up pit in the sense that I just try to write as many jokes behind it as possible. So I can start that way and write the jokes first, or I can start with the melody, um, try to write all the kind of melodic structures on piano and with, you know, uh, just with the melody. And so I kind of have like the musical outline of the song. And then I'll either go to the page and just start writing it like a stand-up bit. And I'll look kind of like you said and sift through the rubble and say, oh, there's like these good 10 maybe jokes that I think I have or five jokes or 20 jokes or however many they are. And I guess it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. At that point, I've got to start seeing what fits and what doesn't. But I'll tell you one thing that really helps tremendously is if it's something big and it's something important that I want to put out there, whether it's a stand-up bit or a musical comedy bit or a sketch, one thing that's been tremendously helpful is having a few writers on deck that I can call that can help me with it before it hits the finish line. And I've even gone as far as, you know, friends of mine, because, you know, I want to value comics and I want to value their time. I'll even pay them. I'll say, yo, man, like, here, here's like a little bit of money. Just let's, let's chop this up for an hour. And um, typically I found that's been extremely helpful because not just adding to or enhancing a joke that I needed a punch up for, but also like warning me that you're about to say this thing right here and it can easily be misconstrued. And I'm like, that's great. You saved me a press conference. <laughs> right. No, I think we sometimes forget about bringing other people in on some um, things like that. You know, uh, when I record CDs, musical CDs, I have a friend of mine who's, who produces all of it. So I'll, I'll just lay down a basic strumming on the guitar kind of thing. And he'll come up with all the really cool musical things to add to it. And then once we get that tight, we're like, we always say, how can we break this? And so we've got something that we think is good, but what will we do to totally disrupt this? Because at, at some point, your music or your skit is going the direction people are thinking it's going. So we're like, well, probably here, they're already figuring out what the punchline is. So let's not even give that punchline. And let's let's do a, 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 an accordion solo for 10 seconds. That makes no sense. You know, We'll just find ways to break it up. So, you know. But I can't do that by myself because I'm too close to it. You know, I can try, and sometimes I do, but usually it's having that second person going, you know, here's a good place to do this and to insert that. Well, I, I've heard, I mean, I love your stand-up. I mean, I was listening to it recently on, on Sirius. It's so good. I, I didn't know you did musical comedy as well. Do you, do you do that in your act, or do you do that more just to kind of put out there and gain, you know, fans and traction? Yeah, a little bit of both. Initially, it was when I was – in comedy, uh, you know, shows like Bob and Tom were huge. And every, whenever I played indie, I would go in there, and I just noticed that all the guitar comedians were getting invited back every, you know, every over and over again. So I've been playing guitar in my show a little bit, but I was featuring, and most headliners didn't like it if you played guitar. So I kind of held off on it until I was headlining. But that was definitely a great way to get the you know re you know get played a lot, get played on Sirius XM and those kinds of things. And, and about every two years. You know, I'll record a a live stand up thing, and then the next year, year and a half, I'll do a musical, just twelve, fifteen songs. You've done full on musical albums. Yeah, I think it's probably six of them. Wow, that's a ton of songs. But the tricky thing for me is I can't keep all the lyrics in my head. So at any given time in a one hour show, I'll do forty five minutes of stand up and fifteen on the guitar. I think that's a good balance. Yeah, I feel like you're totally right. When I was doing stand up at uh, a popular comedy club here. The, the bartender, who is also a comic, looked at me and said, dude, you should just put all the music at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Uh, so I've, I've been more inclined to do that. Sometimes I'll throw it in the middle, like one thing or two things in the middle, but typically it's, it's, a, it's a finale block. Yeah. The, occasionally I'll flip it to where sometimes you walk into a room and you're like, they are so unfocused. My first 10 minutes of stand-up will just eat it. So... I'll pick up the guitar right off the bat and, and hit him with a couple of things and, and just to get him focused. Because music, they have to get quiet or they can't be louder than music usually. But stand-up, they can be louder pretty easy. Yeah, so there's a lot of lot of variety. And that's another thing I like about your act. You can go a million different directions. Some of these videos you put out, though, aren't small productions. I mean, you're, I if it was your one-hour special put together a few years ago. I mean, you had this huge stage thing. You had the uh, the rap glasses and all that stuff going on, dance moves. I mean, that was a full-blown Broadway show, man. How long did it take you to put that together? 
Oh my goodness, man. Well, I will, I will say it was really cool and a lot of fun. I, um, it was, oh boy. I mean, it's kind of like a two part question because I had to do the album first and then like the, <laughs> the show was like the live concert experience of the musical comedy album that we kickstarted. Um, gosh, I, I don't know, but I'm going to guess maybe two months probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then if you put the, I mean, the album, I was so OCD at the time. I think it took me a year, a year and a half to finish the whole album. I mean, I, you know, I mean, like I wrote and produced and had some other people who were great producers helping, but like I was, you learn a lot about how to be more efficient when you're done with album one. So yeah, it was a production, man. Then we had to rent out the thing. We had to have background answers. We did like sets. I had a, a kind of like a music director. Then we had like a, stage director we had all these different actors i mean it was it was not cost effective but it was really cool do you think going back you would have rewritten the stand-up no yeah i don't know what point you started envisioning the stage show but now that you're on the other side if he did it again you would write things that you knew you were going to be doing on stage in a way that was easier to do on stage or more efficient yeah i i mean uh jeff Definitely. In some of those songs, like I should probably bring more of them out because some people are like, dude, I love the live production on that song or it's really great. And um, even a cruise ship booker looked at, uh, or an agent, she's a cruise ship agent. She saw that one song I did with this girl who was on American Idol named Alexandria Lushington called Sensitive Thug. So he's just a really <laughs> sensitive thug, essentially. Uh, he's hitting the streets and Uggs. Uh, <laughs> but we... We she looked at that. I was like, I love that, and uh, she's like, maybe you could get her to go on the ship with you. I'm like, that is so not happy. Like, I'm just like, that is gonna. That would be. How would you, you know, that, that for one song? But um, anyway, so I would de- definitely, yeah. And typically with with now, I I did it kind of in a reverse order. So with that album. I just did everything with co-writers and producers and then debuted it. Like um, a lot of times with comedy songs now, what I have, like in what I had to do when I was doing the cruise ships and writing new comedy songs, like I had to let the audience, you know, be the judge if it was going to stay in my act or not versus like, well, I've worked on this for a year and this is what you get. Rather than now, like if the if the audience digs it, great. But if they don't, like I can't keep bringing it on yeah. a on a headlining stage that I'm getting paid to do. If they don't, I mean, if so, you know, that would probably that's another thing to consider is potentially like presenting it to the audience and let them have a say in the final cut, or at least in what you know I sort of hold on to from a live performance standpoint from the album. That yeah. I re- it's tricky because I, I agree. I think the, at least the first three CDs I did of music, I recorded all the songs and then tried them out on stage. <laughs> How did that work? I mean, because, you know, I feel like you're lucky if you get, if you're writing stand up, like you said, you are lucky to get 10. I mean, you're doing great, in my opinion. If you get 10% of your jokes work, that's outstanding. I mean, like if you wrote, so would you, would you say there, would you quantify it to a percentage of this? amount of my songs that i wrote you know worked on stage or i was able to bring on stage successfully and then how many of those did you have to make small modifications to based on audience reaction and things like that yeah you know it was a lot easier in the comedy club days because you would do so much radio promotion that i would typically get an idea going and and then at a small you know second or third market radio station kind of try it out on the dj and if it got a laugh there, then I'd try it out on the show that night, and then I would modify it and change it, and then kind of, you know, go into the recording studio knowing a little bit about what the song was. But on the album, I always did you know, three verses, three choruses. You know, the chorus changed every time, and that kind of thing. But in the live show, I might only do one verse and one chorus, or a verse and two choruses, and be out because they don't need a three-minute song. They don't need ten of them in a row either. And plus, you know, comedy is all about surprises. So what I would typically do is do um, two, maybe 90 second bits and then set up the third one the same way and do a one liner song, you know, and maybe even do a bigger introduction. Like 
you know, this next song is for a very special lady in my life. I don't know what I'd do without her. Uh, she just moved in across the street from me and my wife two weeks ago, you know, and just, you know, play one line and be done. So there's always the full version of the song. And with a great crowd, I could do all three verses, all three choruses, you know, but with typically in the comedy club setting, it was a verse and a chorus and get out. Just almost like, almost like a showcase set where the more ideas you present, the better, not how long you dig into one single joke. You know, so yeah, a lot of it would change. And then and historically, I'll go back in some songs, I have to change several things because society no longer puts up with certain things. <laughs> you know, I mean, just I used to have a, a, a whole song about driving a rental car. And, and the end of it was a Timothy McVeigh reference because at the time I wrote that song, you know, Timothy McVeigh used a rental U haul to blow up the. Oklahoma building. So, but over time, people found that less funny. <laughs> so I had to find a way to get out of that song without using that reference, you know? So that's a weird thing. If, I don't know if I would re record those uh, with the new version or not, but when I hear it, sometimes I'm like, ah, I can't believe I got away with that. But <laughs> so you teach classes. What's first off, what's the frequency of the classes? Is it kind of based on your schedule and what you're able to do? That's the way I kind of approach it. But it's based on my schedule. I was actually like before Corona hit, I was, I had actually canceled my classes. Like I was like, I had, I was just doing much more, many more shows. I thought like, I'm just going to have to press pause on this for a minute. Then Corona hit and I called all, all those people back. I was like, oh, I was just kidding. Right. <laughs> I guess your classes, you do kind of a combination writing and performance and how, is it six sessions or five or how do you do it? Yeah, I do six sessions, and I, I think first three is really just implementing the f building blocks, and we're really working on writing for the first four, at least first four sessions. I mean, even first five, like in terms of like solidifying a strong, good routine, and then like the last, at least the last two classes, you know, I'm just going in on their delivery, mm -hmm. and yeah. I make them bring a camera, and I basically say, look, you perform it for me and they do. And then I just take notes on their performance and I, you know, write down what's good and what's not, but typically a lot of it needs work. And so those I'll, I'll sort of make notes and of those notes, I will get with them on stage and really like kind of focus on like, you know, one line at a time even and have them videotape it. So when they hear me say like, you got it, that's it. Like that's the right delivery they can look back and watch it and have those reference points to know like, okay, I'm doing it right. And uh, so, yeah, that's been extremely helpful. Yeah. I think the video camera is super important because in the moment where you're giving the feedback, they're absorbing it and then it's gone usually because they're nervous about the next thing, but being able to hit. And same thing with your own act. I've, I found that, especially when I recorded my shorter sets, when I was preparing for a showcase or something, if I listen back, even, I would wait to the next day, usually lunch at the next day, because even that night driving home, if I listened to it back, I was still defending decisions I was making. And I was still, <laughs> oh, the microphone must have been too far from the audience, you know, but the next yeah, day, I'm I like, love that. this is really what it was. And you can be a, you know, objectivity, I guess, is the hardest thing for not only established comics, but new comics. New comics, it's interesting because any laugh you get is the, the biggest laugh you've ever got. Yeah. But the second time you do a show, now you have something to compare it to. And once you've done 10 or 15, you've kind of started to get a little base line for what that joke can do. Uh, I think too many times as more established comics, we just, you know, if we get the laugh we're looking for, we, we just lock that in and keep moving. But we, we don't tweak it as much as maybe we should. Yeah. Even though we've got more skill set in that area, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I've, when I started performing on cruise ships, this past December um, is interesting. Well, I would look at my, I got on the ship and you were supposed to have three different routines. Now I'll be honest. I had like two and I had like a, then I had leftovers, you know? And right. I was like, I'm just going to use a decade of leftovers on show three. Well, I real first show I get on, I just crush. I mean, people are coming up to me, uh, you know, I mean, just saying all kinds of nice things. I'm thinking I have arrived. And then, you know, night two, I perform. And now 
in my defense, it was uh, the age group of the, the cruise. It was like kind of a senior's cruise. Right. So, I mean, you know, some of the stuff we might not have been culturally on the same page, but I rocked night one. And so I, I'm next day I'm walking the, the hall I'm leaving or coming back to the ship. It was actually a, a nightmare because I left the ship early to go to church on Sunday morning. And, um, I didn't realize that you're supposed to, when people disembark, they actually have to like all check out in a specific way. And I didn't do that. And as a result, and, and one reason being that there are people from who have like fleed into the United States, I think, right. you know, um, and they could get in major trouble. Uh, so they couldn't find me. And I look at the end of the church service and I, my phone, it's like a telethon. I mean, it has been blown up by the, I think the entertainment director, like the comedy, I mean, it's, just the, it's, I mean, it looked like my, I was in major trouble and I did, they gave me a pass, praise God, especially once I, when, uh, I think the, the captain of the ship even was there and the other comic stood up for me and he was like, look, give him a break. Like it's, it was his, it's his first time on the ship and he was at church. And I think when he heard he was at church, <laughs> he was like, you know what? I'm just going to leave it because it's like that would have been a whole different bag of worms to open up. You know, you boot someone because they went to church, but they were, you know, they were understanding, but I'm running back to the ship and I see a woman from HR who would welcome me on for my first, you know, I guess, uh, you know, experience on the ship. She'd welcome me on and process me. And she said, how do you think you did last night? And I had two shows and I was thinking, oh, I did, I did pretty good. You know, I mean, going by the first show, and she said, don't lie to me. You bombed. And I'm just thinking, what? Like, what show did you see? And she said, I saw the second show. <laughs> and I mean, it just, I mean, I, oh gosh, I think I wanted to cry. It was heartbreaking, you know. Um, but I look back and I think there's that proverb. It's like a wise man welcomes rebuke. I think, thank you, Jesus, that she said that to me. Because as a result of her saying that, I filmed like, just about every show, I was in my room writing like a maniac. I was taking notes on all my shows. So my third show was, you know, just all over the place. By It took 13 shows on the cruise. Um, not straight, but I think that's between uh, three different cruises I had done. By the show 13, which would have been on the third cruise I did, show three was the strongest of all my shows. Huh. And it's like, had she not given me that, you know, I mean, I thought it was kind of mean how she presented it, but like it, I realized I'm going to have to get into gear or else I don't know if I'm going to have a job here anymore. So I started, I just became a beginner all over again. And it, you know, I mean, it was, it was major growth as a result of that. So yeah, I mean, I feel like if, you know, that's, that's the key to stay a beginner, I guess. Yeah, and you were on a cruise uh, during this pandemic outbreak. Tell me about what happened on uh, that last couple of weeks, and well, the first couple of weeks in March, but the last couple of weeks before things got locked down, and how that affected you and other passengers and everything. Else. It was interesting because I would be in the, uh, I would go to the. Well, typically we have guest privileges if you're a comic, at least, so you can do a lot. I mean, pretty much most of what the guests do i mean you can go up to the you know eat with them you can go to the uh they use the same gym and up on the deck and all this other stuff so that was cool but um when i got on this last time it was right when corona was just sort of like penetrating the news cycle and so turns out we're not supposed to like kind of those guest privileges were revoked and i actually think that was decided for the safety of the comics potentially. But anyway, so that happens and um, I would be at the, so I'm eating now at like the staff mess hall most of the time. Uh, it was actually good food and I, they have a TV and it would have the news on. It was like, all it was was like Corona. I'm like, I'm like, who's making the call on like what channel this is locked on? I'm like, are you sure you want to, I'm not sure this is the best for team morale. But uh, I, so anyway, you could see the temperature was rising and I get to this last performance and before I performed, the cruise director came backstage and was like, look, you know, the, 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 the or I, I found out that the order had come down that they were pressing pause on cruises. 
until uh, at first it was going to be till April, and then they, you know, extended that over, you know, and uh, so I mean, I find this out right before I go on like my last two shows, um, and yeah, it was it was interesting. So, but one thing that was really, I mean, just to see kind of the mood of the staff change because some of those people that were, you know, I luckily could just go on the ship for six to nine days. Right. And then would be done. I do my shows be off for the month or whatever. and could do what, you know, be back on land, do what I want. But like these people were, could be on the ship for like what, six months, nine months, all kinds of things. Some of them are probably sending money back to their family in Indonesia or wherever. And so I'm walking the halls. It was a late night, and I, I just typically would stay up later after these shows, especially if I did a late show. And I walk by the HR room, and I tell you, there was like a, it looked like a circle of 30 people from different countries, or you know, not from the U.S. primarily, um, holding hands in a prayer circle, just like crying out to God for help. I mean, you know, uh, fearful of their future, what th- they're going to do, you know, their families. I mean, even saying things like, God, we haven't represented you. You know, we should have been, I mean, it was, we should have been more faithful. I mean, I, I was like, wow, this is, this is intense, man. And so, um, you know, you definitely saw not just like, I guess the public persona of what was happening on board, but you, you, there was an emotional component to it as well for these people that that was their livelihood. Yeah. It's, it's interesting and it's important, I think for all entertainers to take a second and realize that we, we get the benefit of all these other people working hard. I mean, that whole cruise ship is, I mean, there's massive amounts of people. And sometimes you see that the, your waiter is also in a reggae band on the patio. You know, <laughs> like they're not, working one shift they're working two or three and they're working for six months at a time and gosh yeah and they work seven days a week too oh yeah and they're away i remember talking to the there's like a little bartender area right before one of the showrooms so i would sit in there and wait and kind of watch the people going in and see what the age group was and all that and i was just talking to him he was from the philippines i'm like what's you know what's your family like and he was telling me and his whole goal of working on the ship was to buy nine pigs a year and breed a couple of those pigs and take it to the market. And that would be enough money to feed his family for like three months or four months at a time. Like if he just kept those pigs breeding and in circulation, but to get those initial three or four pigs was a lot of cash, you know? So, and that's just it really put perspective. I remember that he showed me a picture of his family. I showed him a picture I'd taken in my family out in front of our house. And I'll never forget. He goes, he looked at my family, he goes, beautiful family. He goes, what government building is that? And I was like, that's my house. And uh, he's like, that's your house. Like, he just blew his I felt horrible. Wow. He's like, oh, my gosh. He goes, you are so blessed. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I, I need to remember that. But he just totally, you know, it was a look of disbelief on his face. He thought that was like the Capitol building. <laughs> you know, it was just like, poof. Oh, man. So, I, you know, that is important to we need to be more faithful all the time. And sometimes it takes a pandemic type thing. Hopefully if anybody's learned anything from this, it's that whatever plans we have uh, are very secondary to God's plans, unless God's plans are in ours and then we're right there with him. You know, what would you, what would you say to people who are entertainers or just uh, people listening to podcasts that haven't found the silver lining in this crazy time yet? Yeah, I can tell what's worked some for me. I mean, you know, when I got off, just um, when I got off the ship, I was sort of in the, we were in the season of Lent for the Catholic Church. So uh, typically we try to either take something away or add something on that, you know, helps us grow in holiness to some degree, right? So one thing I started to do um, was I would start to spend, I made it a commitment to spend an hour in prayer or like an hour with God in the evening. I, there was even a chapel nearby at the church I go to. Um, and I could go in there and, you know, sit on the pew in front of the tabernacle. And and I would just get centered. And I tell you, it's like that phrase, if I give God one hour of my day, he gives me 23 back, right? So I've just found personally, for me, you know, increasing my proximity to Christ through prayer, 
service, you know, scripture study, you know, church services. And, you know, of course, for me, a, a very important part of that is 12-step recovery as well and sponsoring other people and helping them find sobriety. But, you know, whatever ministry God will call you to, I think it starts, though, in that time of quiet devotion and um, listening. And, and for me, that's when life got really exciting. So, you know, the Lent ended. Easter happened and it just kind of was like, man, life is so much better. Now it didn't mean that I all of a sudden was cruising around in a Bentley or anything like that. But I mean, I mean, just like spiritually, emotionally, like my life was so full and I, he was opening up these doors for influence in areas that really mattered, not necessarily what, you know, would make me famous or what people, you know, would applaud from a professional standpoint. But I mean, things to me that had really a lot of substance in, in terms of opportunities to serve him and his kingdom. And so I think for me, it really started with that time of devotion. So I, I left that, you know, once Easter and I was like, God, it'd be pretty stupid to stop doing this now. So I've just continued that. And I feel like it's really um, made life beautiful and exciting. So, I mean, I think if I'm trying to find the silver lining by myself, that can be a pretty, uh, large tasks to try to endure. But if I, you know, um, lean into the Lord and, and have him direct me, you know, and through, through time spent with him, that's when life makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that's good stuff. I would, kind of this past year, I've started to think uh, in terms of what do people say after a show, you know, because if they come up and they go, man, it was a great show. And man, that was funny. Then my show was good. But if they come up and they go, oh, man, what you said there you know, if, if I bring God into the show, then my show has an impact. And you can have both, but I think if you put yourself first, you don't you don't get the desired results. You know, if you put God first, it, you always benefit from that. I've never had a single time in my life where when I put God first, it wasn't beneficial as a byproduct. You know, he he shines through us. So if people don't mention God or don't ask a question or, or if I don't see an opportunity to, to minister in some small way even after a show, then... The show could have got last, but it didn't have any lasting impact. So not always, not always successful in doing that, trying to get better at that each time. But I think that's a great point and so so powerful. You know, I um, and I think it's good for me too. Like I can, I always try to pray before I hit the stage. I mean, without a doubt, right? I mean, I'm, I'll <laughs> typically say a Our Father, Hail Mary, and uh, you know, Glory be. Just just ask God though, help me give this audience the show that they need not you know what i mean like i think i can in the past i would be like well god help me crush it (laughs) right so i don't think that you know but like there might be something they need right like help this show have the experience that you would like them to have right so i you know it's like that's been very helpful um and then one other thing you said that was so beautiful and it reminded me when i was on the cruise like you know, I one of the I get two probably the most regular comments I would get after a cruise, uh, a good show I would say, um, would someone come up and say, "Hey, thanks for not using language," you know, or "Thanks for not," because I can I can give a sermon, but if I'm dropping bombs, like my message will get squashed pretty quick, right? Right. And then the other one would be like, I'd hear this some, "Hey, th- thanks for your witness, like thanks for your testimony." And there's, I remember, I think about one woman who was on this one ship that I was on and, um, um, she, I started to do some crap. Like she started to maybe gently heckle, but she's a much older lady. And like, I could have, like back in the day, like, a, you know, maybe a decade ago, I might've said some really mean things to her. Like I was that, you know, before I had a, you know, some more major contact with God in my life. Um, I might've just tried to quote win. Right. And that versus instead, I guess I had developed enough to where I could just, it could be more playful. Right. And it was, I knew how to be playful, but also kind of like brush her aside lovingly or ignore her to not, you know, keep the dialogue going for longer than it needed to be. But you know, she came up to me after the show and she told me that she had cancer and that she said, you know, I've got cancer and I just want to let you know they, they wanted me to do chemo, but I said, I'm not going to do it before this ship, this, this cruise, because I want to enjoy myself. And um, I, by the end of the conversation, 
me and like two other strangers, I don't even know how they got into the dialogue. I don't even think they saw me perform actually. We're all holding hands in a prayer circle around this lady in front of the comedy club at like midnight or however late it was. And that woman came to every single one of my shows for the rest of the ship, even the repeats. And so you never know, right? Like what, when, when we have an opportunity, like how, how do we step up? And I'm, I'm not like Captain Faithful. I mean, I, I wish I was 100% with God's will. I'm certainly not. But I look back at those moments and I think, wow, like thank you for giving me the courage to answer the call in that moment. It's interesting to think about it for a second of just everybody in the audience has got something going on. You know, I saw Jeff Foxworthy and, and Leno last year at the Grand Old Opry. A great show. It was it was great. And they both they both did exactly you know, Leno opened up, Foxworthy closed it. And my friend Scott Dunn got us tickets. He he writes for Foxworthy. So he goes, what do you think of the show? And I'm like, man, it's an interesting dichotomy of the two comics. You know, they're both great. They're both legends. Uh, and they the show worked out fine. Like, I didn't know how it was going to roll. And he goes, but what do you think about the, the two styles? And I'm like, man, Leno just gets in there and does, like, the blue-collar work of, of grinding it out. But Foxworthy performs, you know. And he goes, this is how I would describe it. Leno loves the jokes. Foxworthy loves the audience. Wow. Like, oh. And even when Foxworthy came out on stage, before he told him, he took about a minute and a half. He goes, listen, I'm going to do some jokes here in a minute, but I know everybody in the audience is coming from somewhere different. You've got, some of y'all got things going on in your personal life, things going on in your mind, your health. He goes, I know you made a sacrifice to come out here tonight, but I just want to let you know that I know that. And then he got into his material and I'm like, how, when was the last time you heard a comic come out and not worry about being funny? And that coupled with he loves the audience was like, yeah, Leno just wanted to get in there and make sure he hit 45 minutes of, <laughs> which is fine. That's what a comic does. But the impact, who had the bigger impact? Foxworthy. Well, and I think about that too, because it's easy and I need to remind myself, I mean, I was doing a show actually, when was it? Saturday. Saturday and I, you know, I haven't been performing as much, obviously, because of all this craziness. And I mean, I had to remember that it's, I mean, it's not a prize fight, right? I'm not trying to like KO the audience, you know, like with my epic closer. Like, I mean, so there were times I think I had to slow down and, and focus on it's not about taking laughs, but giving laughs, right? I mean, there's that St. Francis prayer that says it's better, you know, uh, help you know it's better for it is in giving that we receive i think that's what it is, one line of it um uh and help me seek to love rather than to be loved is another line so i mean what one line of that is like if i'm trying to take 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 laughs it's 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 uh there's a lot of pressure in that you know so um but to actually slow down and to connect with them like foxworthy did i know i didn't do it that well but that's uh, that's inspiring. It's just you can always learn, you know. Every even now, whether it's your own set or watching somebody else perform, there's always a little nugget you can take away from it. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Gosh, wish I could yeah. have seen that. That sounds cool. Yeah. Well, next time they come through, I'll see if I can wrangle one more ticket. <laughs> hey, man, I'll make the drive four hours. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, for people who want to find out more about you or the classes, just, just look me up on Christian Mingle. No, um, I have a website. It's super simple. It's just funnyjosh.com, funnyjosh.com. And then I have a um, on all social media at funnyjoshharris. Well, it was great talking to you. I could probably talk to you for 10 hours, but I'm glad we finally got this chance to catch up. It's fantastic, man. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh Harris. Uh, great, thoughtful guy. Those are the kind of people I like to interview people with thoughts in their brains and things going in the right direction. Josh certainly does. He touched on addiction there and recovery just a little bit. And, you know, I didn't get too deep into it because I thought there's a great episode of Joel Byers' Hot Breath podcast where they, they cover that in depth. And definitely, if that's something that is a part of your life where you have some addiction and you're wondering how you get through it, or maybe you're on the other side and you're trying to figure out how to make it funny, check out episode 38 of the Hot Breath podcast with Joel Byers featuring Josh Harris. You'll learn more about that journey and how he got to the other side of it. Also, you want to check out funnyjosh.com. He mentioned that website. And, you know, if you're building a new website or thinking about it, 
you definitely want to check out his website. In this day and age of mobile-friendly and moving images, he has done it well, and I think you can learn from just going to that website and checking it out. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, top center, he's got the place where you join his email list. It's very smooth and easy to do. And then just below that on the right, in the top corner, is his link to social. So what I would love for you to do is go to funnyjosh.com right now, join his email list to see how he promotes himself. You can learn from that. And then click on at least one of his socials, subscribe to it, and shoot him a message. Let him know you heard him on the School of Last podcast, that you appreciate his candor and his uh, candor. So however you pronounce it, he's got it. But the word is can, and that's what makes it happen. Can You can't spell candor without can do. There you go. We got something out of that. So uh, funnyjosh.com, uh, subscribe or follow or tweet at him and let him know that you, you heard him on the podcast. Thanks again to Jeremy Lee for sponsoring us through Patreon. You can do the same thing, schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And that is going to do it for this. Oh, no, no. I wanted to read one iTunes review. So here you go. Let's check this out. Uh, five-star review. Always love those. And you can leave those on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen. I have been doing comedy serious for the last three years. I only found this podcast six months ago, but I wish I had found it three years ago. It is a must-listen-to podcast for the aspiring and veteran comedian. It teaches you both how to be a comedian and the business side of comedy. I use things that I have learned from the podcast every day now as a comedian, from how I do marketing to how I deal with clients and, of course, how I write jokes and everything in between. I have been influenced from the School of Last podcast. Thanks, Rick, for this wonderful podcast. And thanks for that wonderful iTunes review, Wyoming Varmint Hunter. I love it. <laughs> thanks a lot. And I know who you are, and I appreciate you taking the online class as well. Thanks a lot out in Wyoming. All right, that is going to do it. Stay safe, everybody, and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Last podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.